Let's pray together. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for this day. We are grateful for this opportunity to worship you in this place. We thank you for all that happens as we do. Lord, we have an opportunity to center our lives afresh on you, to confess our sin and our need for you. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your quickness to pardon and forgive. And we thank you, Lord, for a, for a touch from your hand. Lord, we pray that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that we would see and understand and be shaped, Lord, and formed to be more like your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we open your word together, we pray that you would, that you would meet us here and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, tender hearts that would receive your word like seed planted in fertile soil. God, we pray that our feet would walk quickly to do your will, that you'd strengthen our hands for service, that our work in your world would be as your own. And Lord, we pray that a word of life and witness and hope would be found on our lips. God, this is our prayer in the strong name of Jesus. And we pray together saying, amen, amen. Friends, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs 14. Uh, our focal text today is Proverbs 14, verse 4. We are continuing in the summertime series, What a Mess, God's Grace in the Real World. We've been looking at different images and scenes in Scripture where God meets us where we are uh, and, and does His work of transforming grace and mercy, where He makes us more and more like Christ. We've been all over the Scriptures, and today we're in the wisdom literature uh, in the book of Proverbs. A few years ago, uh, Ron Cook, who I'm, I consider as my pastor, sent me a great little book by L.D. Johnson uh, about wisdom literature. He said it's the best one you can find on wisdom literature, and certainly it encouraged my life and, and shaped my thoughts about uh, Psalms, Proverbs, all these wonderful passages in the Bible. Uh, and in that book, Johnson says this. He says, the book of Proverbs is a collection of wise observations about the good life and its results. The good life and its results. Friends, I believe if there's one thing we have in common, having never met any of you, uh, say I didn't. I know most of you very dearly and closely, but let's just say I didn't know any of you. I would be able to stand here today and say, I believe that we share this in common, and that's that we all have a hunger and a desire for flourishing for life to be as God intended it to be, for us to live out our days in the fullest sense of the term. The book of Proverbs are godly people observing life uh, under, under the sun and making observations about wise choices and wise living. Uh, and today's text is one of these observations about life in this world with God. It's about living out our lives to its fullest, and it's about uh, a key principle that I think will help put joy in your heart and perhaps a little steel in your spine. Uh, let's read the verse together, because it's a weird one. Are you ready? <laughs> Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. I have the next 24 minutes to think about the week ahead. 
have the next 24 minutes to make out the grocery list uh, or to do this, that, or the other. Uh, I'll, I'll get caught up on the news in my emails. Don't do that because this one's for you. I actually love this passage of Scripture. It's real-life stuff. It's practical, everyday religion stuff. Let's read it again. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. Uh, I keep close at hand the New Jerusalem Bible, which is a Catholic uh, rendering of the Scriptures, because they have a lot of fun with verses. It's, it's sort of an, uh, an earthy translation of the Scriptures, and I love what they did with this verse. They rendered it like this. No oxen, empty manger, strong bull, much cash. <laughs> let, let, let's say those things together. No oxen. Okay, let's do the second one better. Empty manger, strong bull, much cash. You get this? Are you, you starting to get this? Let me give you the principle of the ox. An ox is expensive and messy. If you're going to own an ox, you've got to feed an ox. Have you ever seen an ox? They eat a lot. So you have to invest and feed. You can't just let an ox do its thing without feeding it. And so you have to invest in that ox. You have to feed that ox. And it costs a lot of money to feed an ox. It takes a lot of money to feed two elementary school kids, but that's beside the point. You have to feed an ox. Ox are expensive. Okay? When you feed an ox... I know, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I feel like I have to explain this. When you feed an ox, something happens to that feed. The first thing that happens is it becomes energy, and the ox is empowered to do its thing. Then, after a little while, the ox has to provide fertilizer for the tomatoes. Okay? An ox is expensive, an ox is messy. If you are going to own an ox... You must also own a shovel. Again, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I feel like it needs to be explained. Okay? An ox also enables you to do the work that you and ten friends couldn't do. An ox enables you to make a profit. An ox, as expensive and messy as an ox is is exceedingly valuable, okay? So that's another uh, part of the principle of the ox. An, an additional one is this. There are some people in life that like tidy troughs and clean cribs. You cannot have a tidy trough and a clean crib and also own an ox. There's also no need to own a crib or a trough if you don't have an ox. But there are some people that come to the point in life where they think that their life is about the trough and the crib, and they want it clean and tidy. You can't have a clean crib and a tidy trough and have an ox. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I feel like I have to explain these things. 
Because as I go through life, as I observe things, uh, as I've lived my own life, there have been times where I've preferred a tidy trough to an expensive, messy ox. But that won't work. That's not the way of flourishing in the world as it is. In the world that it is, God would call us to a life that both embraces the messy trough and the powerful ox, the messy manger and the power of the bull. These things have to come together. I was recently talking to a pastor friend. He pastors a downtown church in a large Texas city. There are a number of people in his church who uh, are involved in sort of multinational type business. One of those guys is a close friend of his. He's an attorney. Uh, he represents this big sort of multinational deal. And, and one Sunday, his friend was supposed to read in the worship service. He's supposed to read, read scripture. Uh, and so he calls him on Saturday. He calls my pastor buddy and he says, hey, I'm sorry to do this. Uh, but something has come up and I'm not going to be able to be in the service tomorrow. I, I've got to be in China uh, tomorrow. He said, China. he said, I've planned trips to China. It takes a long time to get to China and figure out how to get to China. And he says, you're just going to get in a plane and go to China. He said, yeah, in about two hours. I got to go. Uh, he said, okay. And uh, when he came back from his trip, he said, hey, I've been curious. Ever since you've been gone, I'm just curious. Uh, he said, I've, been, I've, been, I've traveled a good bit, and it takes me a little more time than I'm just getting on a plane to China in two hours. How's that work for you? He said, oh, we just kind of have this arrangement. That has, How much does it cost to send you to China with that kind of notice? Oh, about $35,000. He said, Shazam, Andy. Wow. He'd never traveled like that, but people do. He said, do you ever feel weird? about it costing $35,000 just to send you on a trip? He said, well, I would feel weird about it, but the deal I negotiated saved us $350 million. <laughs> now, you could be the kind of guy who takes your pencil out and says, nope, $35,000, that's way too much. Uh, we just make a phone call. But it doesn't take a genius to do the math to know that that was a wise investment of resources. Throughout our life, there are situations like that where things are messy and things are expensive, but things are, are worth it. And so we've got to learn to put our eyes on the value of things and not get bogged down in the mess and the cost of the investment. Now, we have to kind of tap the brakes right here and be very careful because without some other teachings from other parts of Scripture, we could kind of go to seed here. Let me just say this. You have got to allow God to set the values on this stuff. You've got to have a vision and a heart that is shaped by God's grace and by the truths of Scripture, and you've got to be able to set the valuations of life in a godly fashion or else this thing will, will just blow apart on you. This principle of the ox will run off on you. I'll give you an example. You start looking at your grandmother, whom you, who you've known all your life, and you say, man, Granny's getting sort of expensive in her late 90s. And you think, and she's sure messy in her late 90s. And you say, and Granny doesn't cut the grass nearly like she used to be able to cut the grass. You see, I mean, it can get pretty dark here if you don't value it. But if you do, if you allow God to shape the way you value things, this principle, this principle of the ox can give you joy and strength. 
And it applies in so many different areas. Uh, in your business practices, in your family relationships, in your civic engagements, uh, in your marriages, the principle of the ox can come to play and help bring joy and grit to your experience in this world. Let's just kind of apply it here to something that we all share in common as people who gather to worship on this corner, and that's the principle of the ox at play when it comes to church life. I sat down not long ago, and I just started making a quick list of things uh, that are expensive and messy and worth it, uh, and we could do this all afternoon, but you have lunch dates, and Jerry Johnson has already adjusted my, my clock up here, uh, so I'm just going to give you a, a handful of things, uh, church life things that are messy, expensive, and worth it. One, church finance. Ugh. You start, people get nervous when you talk about money. You know, let's not talk about the money. But here's the deal. God has called us as a church to do things. He has called us to be people that worship uh, and to serve in our community. He's called us to disciple generations. He's called us to evangelize uh, and share the message of God with our neighbors and the nations. He's called us to things. He's called us to do stuff. And all of that stuff uh, needs, needs hay. It all needs energy. It all needs to be fed. Uh, and so, so we have to talk about money, whether we want to or not. It's, it's part of life. Uh, and it and it's, can be a very beautiful, life-giving part of life when you have a vision for the value. And your eyes are not, oh, I don't know, that costs $30,000. I don't know if it's worth it. But it could be in the scheme of things worth it in the heart of God. So there's finances. Write this one down. Without finance, there is no romance. I've always liked that line. So we love God, and we love one another, and we love the world. Well, part of loving God and one another in the world is, is investing in, in the work of the kingdom and the church. All right, number two. Here's, here's an interesting area. Church governance. Now, I'm a Baptist. Raise your hand if you're a Baptist. I was a Baptist a long time before I was a Christian. Uh, <laughs> And I, I mean, I was rocked in the cradle of the Baptist church. Both of my children were born in a Baptist hospital. I mean, we're Baptist people. Uh, and one of the things that I get picked on a lot by people who are Christians but are not Baptist is, is some kind of how we go about things. We, we just, we just kind of do stuff weird in their, in their eyes. And uh, they love to pick on me about committees on committees, you know? Because it just sounds weird to them. And I explain to them, oh, no, it's really helpful. You got to have it. You got to do it. You can't do No. No, it's more important than Pentecost, the committee on committees. You got to have it. <laughs> and uh, so, we go back. so, church governance. Church governance is basically this we have to think about things. If we're going to come together and we're going to worship, if we come together and we're going to drink coffee, if we come together and, and we're going to do it, we've got to think about how that's going to go down. And so, we got to think about stuff, right? Every day, run of the mill, stuff, big stuff, little stuff, in between stuff, we got to think about stuff. And so governance is thinking about stuff. Now, it's not fancy, and it's not sparkly, but you got to do it. Every now and then I get somebody coming, Matt, for about three months now I've been thinking about stuff, and I've been waiting to see if you were thinking about the same stuff I was thinking about. Don't do that. If you're thinking about stuff, say you're thinking about stuff, and we'll both think about stuff together. That's governance. And people are like, I can't do that anymore. I'm just going to stay at home and watch, you know, Charles Stanley on TV. Because when I'm watching Charles Stanley in my underpants, I don't have to think about stuff with other people. God did not intend for your church life to be governed like that. 
He wants us to do things together. He wants us to do life together. He, he wants us to serve together. And if we do it together, we've got to think about stuff together and do things together. That's messy. It's expensive. And it's valuable. So there's finances. There's governance. This is really practical stuff today. The third one, there is preparation for ministry. One of the things that we do as a church is that we're called to prepare for ministry. I love the passage of Scripture in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Uh, in verse 11, it talks about the, the gifts that Jesus gave to the church, pastors, teachers, apostles, so forth and so on, uh, that God gave these people to teach and to equip and to perfect and mature the church for works of ministry. There are two ways to fall off the horse in this, in this sort of category of preparation for ministry. One is to just run headlong into service without, without any thoughtfulness or without any preparation. I can do it! One of the great stories of, of our family is that my great-grandfather started his business. Uh, he was hired to hang doors in the three-foot building, the one sort of skyscraper in downtown Meridian. Mid-sized towns love their singular skyscraper. I mean, what would Waco be without the Alico, you know? You stick the Alico in New Orleans, and it would already be sort of like pigeons, woo, flying around. But we had that one building in, in Meridian, too, and my great-grandfather, he hung the doors in it. And, and the story is he went early every day before work really got started, and he'd get his saws and he'd get his chisels out, and he'd file them down, and he would sharpen them every single day. He would prepare for that work, and the work was effective because he prepared. So one of the ways we fall off the horse of preparation for ministry is we say that is just too expensive and that is too messy and the needs are urgent and you run headlong into it. And that's dangerous and that's not what God wants. The other thing is to, to think that the end game is the prep. <laughs> to think once I have prepared, I have done the work. Okay? Uh, there are people that are Bible study aficionados. I mean, they are connoisseurs of Bibles. Well, that one was kind of good, but it wasn't inductive, and I like the inductive because I go on Monday to the inductive, and on Wednesday I go to this one and do the deductive, and Thursday and Friday, and then on, you know, Thursday in the afternoon I watch it on TV. I know some of the meanest, most ineffective Christians that spend 35 hours a week in Bible study. You can laugh if you want to, but it's a reality. I mean, that's not the end game. I once knew a guy... He loved to go to the Golden Corral, uh, and he beat the system. He would go in the morning to the Golden Corral, pay for breakfast, and stay all the way to dinner. <laughs> you don't have to be the Surgeon General to know that's not healthy. And before you think of it, it was not me. But some people sort of treat Bible study like that. I mean, let's just it gorge and gorge and gorge. But that stuff is for a purpose. It's to shape our hearts, and it's to shape our life, and it's to prayer us to serve God in the world that is as we long for the world that he is making. So there's finances, there's governance, there's preparation for ministry. There's all, all of these things. There's prayer. Prayer sounds so wholesome and pious until we try to pray. I've never just been able to gently fold my hands and do it. Prayer, you know, is as soon as you start it, 
your mind runs to a thousand different directions. You know as soon as you begin to pray for your sisters and brothers that you're in a fight. Things you hadn't thought about in a hundred years, as soon as you start to pray for your sisters and brothers come flooding into your mind. You start to pray for somebody, you think, then you start reminded, oh, don't you remember what she said to you? Don't you remember what he did? Don't you da 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 You been there? Prayer is a scrap. People who think it's easy never do it. Those who pray know that it's messy and it's expensive and it makes a claim on our life, but God calls us to it. I love that great passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel 12 where Samuel says, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Have you ever said that to God? God, I'm sorry for sinning against you because I am not praying for my brothers and my sisters. Why don't we pray as easily as, as, we, as we think it should be. Why, why isn't it as easy? Because it's messy and expensive and it's war. It's a fight. You're battling it out with principalities and powers. It's expensive and it's messy, but it's worth it. It is worth it. How about conflict? Now, I'm not talking about uh, sin here. I'm just talking about well-meaning, bright people disagreeing on how to go about things. God is not given to efficiency. Have you noticed that about God? And he tells us to do church like this. I want to take a bunch of really smart people that are used to kind of governing a section of the world, and I want to throw them all together in one room and say, all right, play together and make a church. And so you got all these butchers and bakers and candlestick makers uh, and all these different kind of folks who are, who are used to handling their part of the world. They're used to sweeping their ports, and then you put us together, and, and we got to figure out how to, how to do this, this gospel life together, how to live it out. That's expensive, and it's messy, and it's valuable. Clean crib. No ox, strong bull, much cash. It's worth it. It's worth it. All right, let's move on. Let's, let's say the conflict is born of sin. Let's say we sin. I know none of you do it, but let's just go ahead and theoretically say, this week you're going to sin. Maybe that sin is, is in your mind is, is small, or maybe it's large, maybe it wounds. There, there are no victimless crimes here. Uh, we sin against God, but it always splashes over on other people. Let's, let's talk about sin. So how do we deal with sin uh, in, in the world that it is as brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, one way is just to totally ignore it in our lives and the lives of others. And, and man, we, we, we dress this one up, and we make it sound pious, and, oh, I'm, you know, non-judgmental and all that. Fine and good. I am so glad that my parents, my wife, my closest friends, my mentors over the years did not adopt a no-judgment policy when it came to my life. Their judgments that they made were shaped by their love for God and for me. And there have been times and times where people that I love dearly, who love me dearly, would look at me as Nathan looked at David and said, You're the man. And iron sharpened iron. They pull that big log out of their eye, looking in the mirror in the morning, and they said to God, God, I want to please you today. I want to serve you today. Help me today. And with a humility of heart and awareness of their own brokenness, they help me to get those specks out of my eyeballs. And they continue to do that. 
growing up around old carpenters, regularly I got sawdust in my eye just as Jesus would have as a little boy. Can you imagine those days where Joseph said, hey, son, stop, stop, hold still. Let me hold your head. Jesus, don't move your head. Hang on just a second. Let me get it out for you. Tender, loving ministry. Joseph was making a judgment on Jesus. He keeps rubbing his hand on his eye like that, and he's going to go blind. I've been here before. I've seen this before. I've done this before. Hold still, son. Let me handle this for you and with you. There is sin. The big fancy word for that in, in ethics is fraternal correction. That is, brothers and sisters, we correct one another as we share life together, as we get in each other's chili and count the beans. That's life together. It's risky, it's massive, it's expensive, and it is worth it. As God shapes us and molds us into the likeness of Jesus. And there's also the practice of forgiveness. You have fraternal correction and you have forgiveness. There are times where we simply have to forgive those who have hurt us. We've got to let it go. We've got to turn it loose. We have got to judge it for what it was, which was a sin and, and, a, and a violation, and then we have to refuse to be held by it. Years ago, Stephen Mansfield told a story about, about when he worked in the, the lobby of a college dormitory. You've been in these places? You've seen them? He was kind of like before they had all the cards, he was the sign-in guy. Uh, I used to love the sign-in guy at the dorm. Remember those guys? He was the sign-in guy. And one day there was a family that came to, to visit an older sibling. They had a younger kid there with them. Mom and dad were, were busy with the older sibling. The kid went, uh, and he found a candy machine. He did not have coins, so he rammed his arm up into the candy machine. And he got stuck. And when he got stuck, he started to scream. Ah, I'm stuck! The parents came down and started yelling at Stephen, who was working at the desk. He's like, go get somebody. Get, get, get the building and grounds people. Call out the National Guard. Get a paramedic. Get an attorney. We're going to sue. Go get somebody. Mansfield walked over to the little boy, took a knee, looked at him in the face, and said, let it go. And the parents started screaming at him, what are you yelling at my son for? My baby, why he's stuck? He was, he was attacked by this machine. Why are you yelling at my son? He said, let it go. The boy grabbed a snicker bar, and he couldn't get his hand and the snicker bar out of the machine. But as soon as he was willing to release it, he was free. Do I need to tell you the, 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 the lesson here? The lesson is there's a lot of us hanging on to some bitterness and some unforgiveness and some stuff, and we are stuck. And the attorneys and the building and grounds guys and the National Guard will not set you free, but forgiveness will. Forgiveness is messy, and it is exceedingly expensive, and it's worth it. It's worth it. So we've come to the end of my little list. I bet you can make a list of your own. Adding to this, we could do it all afternoon. But I've come to the end of my little exemplary list. We've gone far enough for you to get the picture of the principle of the ox. Now as we go to a hymn, a hymn of commitment, I normally ask you to look into your heart
think about things from your perspective. I don't want, I don't want to do that today. Today I want to ask you to use your sanctified imagination and try to see things from God's perspective, to adopt a God's eye view of things as it relates to you and the church, as it relates to, to service in the world, as it relates to, to going about it with your sisters and brothers in Christ. Now, God could have set things up far more efficiently than he did. God could have redeemed the world in a much more tidy way. God could have done things without using people like me and you to do his work. Angels would have been far more compliant. God could have subcontracted this out to UPS. That'd have been a lot more efficient. God could have called on FedEx. That'd have been even even the United States Postal Service would have been more efficient. Forgive me if you're a postal worker. Than the church of Jesus Christ. But God values things higher than cheapness and tidiness. God could have had a clean crib and a tidy trough. But from the first seconds of the incarnation, God demonstrated to us that he is the God of the messy manger. You know, every Christmas when we sing, Little Lord Jesus, asleep on the hay, no crying he makes. You know that song? You've, you've, you've asked us to sing this song. It is the dumbest song ever written. <laughs> I sing it every Christmas, and every Christmas I say, oh, what a sweet song. How stupid. No crying he makes? Give me a break. The little Lord Jesus, as soon he was laid in a manger, which is a trough, he looked up at his daddy and mama and went, He cried his little eyes out. Those little lungs had to develop so he could preach the gospel of God. He needed to eat. And he was a baby, wrapped up and placed in a trough. And as he started to scream, that teenage mama picked him up and placed him on her very body and gave him life. And a few minutes later, he burped really loudly. <laughs> there was a night in human history where the Son of God, the Son of Man, burped really loudly. Oh, he didn't. You have terrible theology. <laughs> of course he did. And then those swaddling clothes, oh, those swaddling clothes, not long after the burp came a new set of swaddling clothes. And you have Joseph, the carpenter. You're going to be able to play in a minute. Joseph, the carpenter of Nazareth. He's unwrapping those swaddling clothes. And he, he finds that the Son of Man, the Son of God, has deposited collard greens into the swaddling clothes. And he goes, ah! He goes, God, why? He goes, God, why? The first Hours of the incarnation 
God boldly said, I'm the God of the messy manger. And I can do it the way I want to do it. And the way I want to do it is I want to take a bunch of people that are touched and transformed by my grace, and I want to put them together, and I want them to together share my word with the world. You say, God, that's so messy. That's so expensive. And God would say, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Bottom line, you don't have a choice to be actively involved in the body of Christ if you name the name of Jesus. They're wed together in the heart and the mind of God. The church was his idea, his passion. We are his people, the sheep of his fold. The God of the messy manger has called us to be the bull, strong, resolute, expensive, messy, and effective. God, we're amazed sometimes at how you set things up and we're grateful. And we're awed by it. And Lord, we need you. We confess readily that we need you every hour. And in this hour, we need you. Lord, give us a sense of your grace and your forgiveness. And give us a sense of your strength, your grit, and your joy. Help us all to recommit ourselves today to being your people, to doing your works, to speaking your words. Lord, as we stand and sing, and friends, I'd ask you to stand and sing. Stand up now, everyone in the room. Lord, as we stand together, we stand as a people, we stand as a church. And Lord, we pray for those that you would bring into this church, and if it's today, we'd, we'd invite them to come, Lord. And Lord, for anyone here who would confess their way to you, Lord, we pray as we sing that they would come. Seal in our hearts a fresh commitment this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's sing together. David, please lead us.